Um, I always feel shy here. And I feel shy for two reasons. One is you have such a wonderful teacher. You know, I mean, Gil is so extraordinary that to come here and sort of sit in his seat is... Uh, The other thing is, <laughs> I practice under very different circumstances, as some of you know. And making a bridge between the circumstances of our practice and the circumstances of people's lives here can be extraordinary, extraordinarily difficult. You know, because either it sounds so completely alien that, you know, it, it can't be imagined, or it gets assimilated too quickly, and the very real differences are obscured. And, of course, in these weeks, making a bridge is especially important because our work is active compassion in the middle of struggle and suffering. And that has unfortunately come home to America quite dramatically, quite suddenly, and for many people quite unexpectedly. Right? So when I had thought about talks when I was planning this trip to the States, I thought, this year I want to talk about delusion. <laughs> and I do. And I want to talk about delusion as an obstacle to compassion. All right? And that I do think has as much relevance right at this moment in America as it does in our practice. Now, I'd like to talk maybe for about 20 minutes. Some of it's going to be pretty standard stuff that you've heard a thousand times. And then I'd like to throw it open for questions because that way we get to work more actively on making a bridge. Okay? So a little bit of background. Um... What I have essentially is a very small chaplaincy project for destitute AIDS patients. We have three people. We have me. We have my translator, who is a wonderful, wonderful young man. And we have a 68-year-old woman whose son died of AIDS a little over a year ago in the hospital where we were working whom we sent for basic nuns training. And what we do is we hang out with people. You know, it's not all that different from chaplaincy anywhere. Um, for the first year and a half, we went to the 60-bed AIDS unit in Phnom Penh because we're a very small, very low-budget 
project and we don't have money for food and we don't have money for medicine, you know, and we don't have money for money, right? So we have to go where people have that. We can't walk into a house where somebody hasn't eaten in three days and say, oh, good, I'll chant for you. <laughs> right? So after a year and a half, we pulled out of the hospital and have been setting up coordination so that now we'll be working in people's homes through the home care network and also through an organization that works with street children. And we'll see how that works. And in the next year, I'd like to build up. We have another mommy in the pipeline who wants to be an AIDS worker and a nun. So when I get back, we'll start training her. Um, we might have a third mommy soon. It's actually easier to take a mommy. Oh, you should understand that all nursing care, all nursing care is done by families. Okay, so a mommy who has nursed a dying daughter or son or daughter or son-in-law has a, a wealth of understanding about the meaning of the suffering that's going on. And it's easier to teach them the rudiments of chanting and the rudiments of vinya, the monastic discipline that's in use in Cambodia than it is to take someone who doesn't have that wealth of understanding you know and whose family might be very very opposed to her working with those filthy AIDS patients <laughs> and try to work from that end so our recruiting policy such as it is is mommies and we'll see we need to begin to develop um, I'd like to see us in a year or so be a training facility for home care teams that want spiritual workers, where someone will come to us for maybe three months, we'll do basic Buddhism, um, they'll get chanting in Vinaya through the Nuns Association in the Watts, you know, and they'll get lots and lots of hands-on experience working with people who know what they're doing. So we'll see. That's kind of the long-term picture. Um, the conditions under which we work, the physical, social conditions under which we work, are one of those things that are very hard to bridge. Nothing you have ever seen in a hospital, nothing you have ever seen of destitution in America really prepares you for the ordinary lives of the poor in Cambodia. So we can talk more about that in a bit. I just want to alert that that's an issue. Am I loud enough? Okay. <clears throat> okay, so, well, it's actually not on. Should I turn it on? Okay. Is that, okay. Usually I'm plenty loud, but I've got a hoarse voice. <laughs> okay. Um, 
Let's do a little bit of basic Buddhism one and two that you all know already, just to sort of talk about delusion. Because the point I'm trying to get to today is that the fundamental delusion that we are the self that we know as ourself is the biggest obstacle to compassion. Okay? So I want to come at delusion from two directions. All right? The first is the first noble truth and suffering. And the tradition distinguishes three levels of suffering. There's the suffering of suffering, which is the easy one, the one we all know. There's the suffering of change. And there's the fundamental suffering that comes because we identify with what we call ourself. Now, strictly speaking, that's our karma. And it's composed of intention in a very broad sense. And it is what carries from life to life. So it's not like something we do that's like easy and stupid to fix that we make this identification. But it is the root of suffering. And all of Buddhist practice and all of Buddhist training and all of meditation practice is designed to help us cut through that and establish ourselves in the ground of reality. You know, in Zen we call that the larger self. You know, um, sometimes it's called non-discursive awareness. There are many, many, many names for it. But it's the energy of the universe that flows through us and takes specific shapes. And when we de-identify with the shape, we don't then identify with the universal energy because there's nobody to do the identifying at that point. You know, we just de-link and that de-linking is the radical transformation that the Buddha brought to the Hinduism of his time when he said that not self is fundamental, you know. Most of us have read lots of Thich Nhat Hanh, and he does this just beautifully. You know, if you look at the piece of paper, it's composed entirely of non-paper elements, right? Every, most people know that passage. It's got the tree, it's got the roots of the tree, and the quality of the soil, and what the logger ate for breakfast, and, you know, all those things in it. But there is no paperness, there's no platonic ideal here. You know, there's no soul. 
There's no eternal, immutable, specific. And that was really radical. Okay? And we can read that and we can say, yeah, gee, that's nice, right? And then we go right back (laughs) to connecting with who we think we are, right? I once heard Gil give a great talk about this. He was talking about how after the Buddha's enlightenment, Mara used to come and visit. People have heard this one. And Buddha would just say, Mara, I see you. And Mara would disappear. But Mara kept coming. <laughs> right? So if we take the question of delusion from the question of suffering, it is the root of fundamental suffering. All right? There's, and it is the one that is there when the suffering of suffering isn't there, when the suffering of change isn't there. It's the one from which the others emerge. Because if we don't mistake our karma for ourself, or we don't buy into the illusion of a self, then we have nothing to get greedy with. Who's greedy? Who's afraid? Who's angry? We just escaped the whole net. Okay, which is the second way of getting at it, and that's the second noble truth. Suffering comes from attachment. And attachment has three forms. Greed or desire, anger or hatred, and ignorance or illusion. That which pulls us to things, that which pushes us away from things, and again, underneath it, the illusion that makes it possible to pull and push us because we think that we are this thing that can get pulled and pushed. So there we are in the middle of delusion trying to help. (laughs) Trying to help who? Trying to help how? Um, I'm going to say this with apologies because I don't want this to turn into a political discussion, but one of the dangerous things that I've been hearing in a lot of congressional speeches and such in the last week is the identification of American military power with good. Now, even were that true, it would be wrong. Okay? And I don't want to get into the debate about the politics here because nobody convinces each other in those debates. But it's not only that we identify and attach very firmly right now to aspects of this country, but we insist that they are a certain way. And that renders us incapable 
of seeing what's out there. It renders us incapable of finding genuine resolution, genuine compassionate interaction that will keep these atrocities from recurring and escalating. All right. Now, I want to pull this back a minute to Cambodia. <laughs> Because at a certain level, that one's easy, right? Okay, you know, however we do it politically, at a certain level, that one's easy. When I started this project two years ago, I had incredible fantasies that I wasn't looking at. You know, I was just going to float in and help everybody have peaceful deaths and, oh my God, you know, like Mother Teresa on a, on a, on a cloud, right? Sometimes it helps because it generates the energy to start something. But it drains you real fast. Because, and again, I think a lot of people in this room know this because I suspect a lot of these people in this room are psychologists or psychiatrists or drug counselors or have children who've had difficult lives or, you know, right? So this isn't really all that different. That when we actually encounter the suffering that somebody else is undergoing, whether that is personally generated or structurally generated, or wherever that suffering is coming from, our ability to make a meaningful connection with that suffering depends entirely on delinking from our own fantasies of who we are. Even if those are lovely fantasies, to the extent that we're caught up in them, we're not paying attention. You know? We're too busy with the mirror to have real space for the pain. And what the Buddha tells us is the moment we get out of the way The moment we delink is the moment when the larger compassion of the universe can go to work in that situation. So the trick with delusion <laughs> is that Delinking is constant. In the Mahayana, which is the tradition to which Zen belongs, we have four basic vows. Sentient beings are numberless. 
I vow to free them. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. The enlightened way is unsurpassable. I vow to embody it. Now, clearly all these are impossible. You know, but each of them has as its core that delinking process. Because as we delink again and again and again and again and again, the space is there for reality. The space is there for clarity. The space is there for compassion. In our work, the way we define our work is we want the patients to understand, and the families, that the compassion of Buddha is already there for them. It's not something we have to bring them. It's not something they have to earn. You know, it's right there. But there are barriers to their knowing it. And there are barriers to our knowing that in our own lives. You know? So, as we see again and again and again our limits in helping the patients, we also see the barriers in our own lives. You know? What didn't I see that made me miss that connection? You know, where was my attention? Why was it there? How do we need to address these things? None of these are questions about Cambodia. These are questions about practice. And what the Buddha promised us, all of us, is that we already are the answer to this. We already are the answer. But we have to learn that. You know? When I chant, I don't know Khmer chanting. So when I chant for the dying, I chant the Atadipa. And I don't tell them it's the Buddha's last words because you, you don't do anything that makes a patient feel that you're encouraging them to die faster. <laughs> It's one of the things you have to be very, very, very careful about. And, you know, what the Atadipa says is, you are the light. Dwell in that. Rely on yourself. Do not rely on anything other than yourself. The Dharma is the light. Rely on the Dharma. Do not rely on anything other than the Dharma. And we chant that again and again and again. And some of my patients like it for a lullaby. And, <laughs> and sometimes you can see the peacefulness building 
slowly, slowly, slowly building with people. But that's not the ego. The you that is the light is not your karma. It's not the you that you think of when you think of yourself or that I think of when I think of myself. You know? What I tell the patients when I translate it is I say, what the Buddha is saying is what you really are behind all this suffering, behind all your fear, is light. And you can rest in that light the way a child rests in its mother's arms. The fundamental issue from this perspective <coughs> is the delusion that we are a self. That self is what the Buddha identified as karma. Intention in the largest sense that carries us from life to life to life. And it operates as one of five kinds of cause and effect called niyamas. It's not the only thing out there. It operates in interaction with everything all the time. And we get fooled. We're born fooled. And the process of waking up is the process of delinking from that delusion so that we can become available, compassionate energy for the suffering in the world. Okay, thanks. Okay. Oh, I'm going to get real self-conscious because my chanting voice is awful and I've, got, I've been having asthma. Okay. Atasarana Ananasarana Dhammadipa Dhammasarana You can do like a hundred and eight of those, (laughs) especially if you can breathe. (laughs) Yeah, questions, things, yeah. Oh, come on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Can everybody hear you? No. No. Okay, I'll just, uh, <laughs> the point of this guy's conversation was that we talked about corporations as though they are individuals. And the conversation that we're hearing on the, on the news now is talking about a country as an individual trying to go to war, not go to war, whatever, with a country as though it's an individual and making demands of the individual as though it's a country, the country is an individual. And it's like, wait a minute, the country is not an individual, and that seems to be a loss. It's called reification. <laughs> That's when you take something which is fluid and complex and open and you fix it and you make it one thing and then you attach to that one thing, either positively or negatively. But what you're doing is you're fixing it. And as you fix it, you also fix yourself. And I don't mean correct here. <laughs> you know, and my Tonglen teacher, who's in the Tibetan tradition, argues that when we talk about greed, anger, and ignorance, we're not talking about you get hungry and you eat. You know, um, we're talking about you get hungry and you think about the hamburger, and then it's that specific hamburger. And, you know, and then, of course, when you get it, it never tastes right because it's not what you had in your mind. But it's about that idea replacing the reality and interfering with the spontaneous and necessary processes. And, yeah, yeah, I think we're seeing a lot of that. Yeah. Right. One thing that, that I'm always curious about is it seems to me like a lot of times um, I'm always curious about what people in Asia think about Buddhism right? <laughs> compared to what I think about Buddhism. And I kind of can imagine that if you were in Cambodia you might be... <laughs> Um, I'm going to do two things with this, okay, because Cambodia is a special case. Buddhism in Cambodia was destroyed under the Khmer Rouge. It was corrupted horribly under Sihanouk's regime. Well, it was controlled by the French, corrupted under Sihanouk, messed up by Lan Nol, destroyed by the Khmer Rouge, and radically politically controlled by the Vietnamese. And now it's being reconstructed, and it's being reconstructed like everything else in the country, with immense corruption. So there is, and it's also, you see, we talk about Buddhism in Asia, there are many Buddhisms in Asia. But Gil is a much better source for this because of his training in Thailand and Burma. You know, I go over to Thailand for meditation retreat, and there are fantastic Thai teachers, just fantastic. I know there are Burmese fantastic teachers, but I know some of the Thai ones. And, and in Cambodia, we have Mahagosananda, but he lives in Massachusetts now. 
And Cambodian Buddhism traditionally, like most Theravada Buddhism, got remixed with Hinduism. Um, maybe more so because the Cambodians, unlike the Thai and the Burmese, are actually um, genetically from Indian stock, not from Chinese. So that you've got a biological cultural mixture. But the regional Buddhism uh, got remixed with Hinduism, and that's how the Theravada emerged. And of course, my own tradition is Mahayana. So there are a lot of complex issues. There's not one Buddhism. It's like saying, what does American Christianity think about something? Or, you know, well, which Christianity? Are we talking about, you know, uh, Falwell? Are we talking about the Quakers? (laughs) So, yeah. But Gil actually can give you, and some of the monks who come who are in the Thai tradition, can give you a much more from the inside view of Thai Theravada Buddhism anyway. Does that not help much? Yeah, that's... I'm kind of curious too about, do you, in your role, do you find that people are asking... Talk a lot. Absolutely. (laughs) If we don't understand what people are thinking and feeling, then how on earth can we respond? Um, There's actually a classic one about that that does have to do with traditional Cambodian Buddhism and karma and is one of our success stories. Can I tell you a success story? Um, There's a lot of admixture with It feels Confucian to me, but once a child is 15, 16 years old, they are to be concerned with repaying their debt to their parents. So, and the repayment of your debt to your parents is something that starts early and never ends, okay? And where we encounter this, you know, and it's not inherently problematic. It's nice to be good to be at your parents, you know. Um, but when we have mothers taking care of dying children, adult children, we repeatedly run into the problem that they believe that every single thing they do for that child puts a burden of sin onto the child and creates bad karma for the child because the child is an adult and should be taking care of them. And that is a killer. So you get these people, you know, you get people who are putting in 24 hours a day, cleaning, massaging, helping to the toilet, cleaning up, doing everything, and every single one of those actions is fraught with guilt. And that's actually what's, that one actually yields. If you say, look, 
You are acting from compassion and you are making merit. And because your child is giving you the opportunity to make merit, your child is making merit, and nobody is making sin here, then actually people do shift around and that burden lightens. There are other burdens we have a harder time with. But that's the kind of thing. That's where it was months of work before people knew us and trusted us enough to talk about that kind of problem. Yeah. If we don't know that problem, yeah. So yeah, the more we know, the more we listen, the less we are caught up with who we are, the more possible it is to find the response that will help. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, this is probably a tall order. <laughs> I'm just wondering if you can offer any kind of uh, context for what we're living in now, um, particularly the fear. Because to me, it's a lot about fear and what the future holds. I can offer you a couple of very traditional strategies. The first is metta, of which I am sure you have heard plenty. As you probably know, the Buddha first preached the Metta Sutra when the monks were afraid to go meditate in the graveyards. All right? And as a cure for fear, Metta is very, very, very powerful. Oh, okay. Uh, Metta is a practice of, you know, they're the four cardinal virtues. There's loving kindness, compassion, shared joyousness, and equanimity. And metta is the loving kindness part. And metta practice is a series of four wishes uh, that can be expressed in all kinds of different ways or changed. But the version that I use is... <laughs> Why am I blocking on the first one? <laughs> anyway, uh, let me give you the simplified. It's, uh, may I be free from suffering. May I be free from fear. Okay. I'm, why am I... No, well and happy is the fourth. There's one I'm blocking on right now. It's not just my normal senility. It's a real block because I'm blocking in two versions. Hmm? No, no. Uh, no, that's suffering. But okay, every, versions all over the place. <laughs> anyway, traditionally you start with yourself, but that's a problem for Americans. And there's some funny stories about Sharon Salzberg and the Dalai Lama, trying to explain to the Dalai Lama that Americans have trouble wishing themselves well. Um, anyway. Uh, Enmity. Enmity. You see why I'm blocking? It's the absolute key one here. May I be free from enmity. May I be free from hatred. May I be free from anxiety or fear. Uh Yeah. (laughs) Enmity. Good old enmity. (laughs) 
All right. You start with someone who's easy so that you feel the experience of loving kindness flowing to that person. And then slowly you build up to the hard situations. And one of the ways that you approach it in the harder ones is you look at what the situation looks like to the other person. And you understand that all beings strive to be happy. So you ask, what has gone on with that striving that makes it take this form? But you, you need to do that. You need to make the leap into the other perspective. Because once you can make that leap, That doesn't mean you have to agree with somebody morally. You just have to see how the world looks to them and why it looks that way and why if you were under the same situations it might look that way to you. You know, Thich Nhat Hanh is always saying if I'd been brought up on the South China Sea I'd be a pirate too. You know? So meta is a real start on that. It's a start for our own fear. We use it in the hospital. Sometimes somebody's a new patient and there are two people in the room and the other patient dies and the new patient hasn't gotten used to the idea of their own death at all yet and maybe it's a hard death and we come in and somebody is pretty freaked out Yeah, and they're afraid of the ghosts. Okay. And metta is great for that. Okay. So the first thing, the first thing for fear is always metta. You know, it is the specific medicine for fear. (laughs) Um, The other thing that I would recommend is getting hold of some of the... There's a lot of stuff out there right now that is doing really intelligent work trying to show how this happened. Most of it is not on CNN. (laughs) But I get 15 emails a day and maybe four of them are just astonishingly good quality, meticulous, careful stuff from people who are interested in finding a real way out of this. Okay? And try to get hold of some of that because as long as it remains unintelligible, then it's a thousand times as frightening. Okay, the third thing, and I don't know if people are going to like this one or not, but here goes. Use your understanding of your own fear to imagine the situation 
of people who do live under very different conditions, who have never known what it is to feel that their country is safe, who have had their cities and their houses destroyed again and again and again. Use your own fear as a way into community with the suffering in the world. And that is really liberating because it doesn't only liberate you from your fear, but it works to liberate all beings. Okay. So turning it around, you know, asking seriously, how can someone do this? That's a serious question. We don't know those answers automatically. How did that happen? And then getting outside of this sense, because fear is very isolating. It freezes us, it fixes us, it does all that kind of stuff. You know? And the moment that we use it to establish community, then it's like the sun coming out on the fog. You know? So that's, that's where I'd start. <laughs> and I'm not, I'm not saying it's going to be easy. You know. Yeah. Well, let me give you my email and you write to me and ask for them. Okay? Because I have a horrible memory. <laughs> and email is how I basically communicate with people. Uh, so it's goldring, G-O-L-D-R-I-N-G, at forum, F-O-R-U-M, dot, org, O-R-G, dot, K-H. Okay? And anybody is welcome to use that for anything. That's like, <laughs> you know, if you want to get forwarded stuff, if you want to write about you know, how idiotic my talks are. That's fine. <laughs> yeah. Ah, oh, come on. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Thank you. And there's one place where I struggle a great deal. Mm -hmm. uh, and it came up yesterday when someone who's very close to me suggested that uh, there's a possibility in her opinion that in our country we may be instituted mm -hmm. And I have a who is And everything shifted at that moment. And that was very painful and tremendous fear of losing him. In that, and I began to, you know, counsel in the future <laughs> rather than being here now. Um, and uh, I started to deal with uh, 
Well, well, I'm kind of hearing it two ways here. And maybe I'm like completely off the wall, all right? Well, I'm off the wall a lot. <laughs> but use it. What about other mothers? You know, you have a way into this this proposed war not being, you know, CNN nightly special and into being a human reality with moral implications and depth of feeling. Don't throw that away. Use that. You know, it may make you see all these proposals differently. You know, I was talking to my cousin yesterday. She says, you know, ever since we have kids, 20 years is real different. <laughs> you know, that's your son. You, you know, it's not like, you know how I do that one? And this is how I get asthma. How I do that one is I pretend that I can cope with the deaths of people that I love. All right. And then I break down. <laughs> you know, I mean, I have, we make cards because very often the service that I do for people is the only religious service that they get. So normally for 49 days after a death, I chant that person's name. And once a year I bring them back and then I go to my home community in New York and there's the hungry ghost ceremony on October 30th. And the next morning I ritually burn the cards, you know, with each person's name and everything. Anyway, I have more than 300 cards with me. Before we pulled out of the hospital, we had 230 of those cards. And I keep getting the, the hospital list because nobody else chants for them. But of those 230 people, we knew 200 of them enough and maybe 80 of them closely and maybe 40 of them were really our friends. And when I pretend that I can cope with that is when I get asthma. <laughs> When I don't cry enough, I get asthma. Um, last year when I was in town and I went to see my Tonglen teacher and we had had 30 deaths in two and a half weeks and we just you know, took a long break. <laughs> and now we take a long break every year. He said, can you imagine having 30 deaths in two and a half weeks and being happy? And I said, no. He said, you're going to have to learn how to do that. And he started telling me Dalai Lama stories. He's been the trans one of the translators for the Dalai Lama for about 30 years. And he talks about how often the Dalai Lama cries. He says, you know, these people come out of Tibet and they've got these horrible stories. And the Dalai Lama just like puts a shawl over his head. And you see his shoulders shaking. And then he says, he bounces up like a cork with all this lightness and warmth and love. What keeps 
What keeps me from doing that are the ideas I have about how I'm supposed to be able to handle it. You know, this is nuts. This is nuts. You know, it's when we can let those feelings flow through us fully and completely and correctly without impediment, then the compassion flows. Yeah. So, yeah, get worried about your son. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah. Oh, come on, I didn't shut everybody up. Or are we late? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Listen, you guys. I don't think you have any idea what a privilege it is to visit and how much I look forward to it. Um, I think Gil is just one of the fantastic people around. And the quality of practitioner and the seriousness of the practice that he encourages and fosters and supports. You know, I came in this morning and somebody said, nobody comes at 8 o'clock. And I said, oh, I want to sit with you guys. And looks at me and says, eh, what is this woman? <laughs> but I spend a lot of my time, I sit, we sit every day in our project. On Sundays for a long time we had a group that met for meditation I go on retreat by myself a lot. You know, it's when I come to America that I can actually sit in American Buddhist communities <laughs> and, you know, most of the time not as the teacher and not, you know, and just be able to absorb all the wonderful strength of practice. And for that I am very, very, very grateful. So I thank you very much.